0: Our psalm this morning is Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And our New Testament lesson is found in the book of Revelation, final book in your Bible. We are reading from chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would give us ears to hear, that we'd be attentive to all that you have revealed, even when it comes to us in difficult form. Drive your truths into our hearts and lead us as to what it means to be a faithful lamppost. That we would be your people in the world. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Last week we had the opportunity to hear from Sandy Wilson about God's call upon our lives to engage in his mission. If you've not had the opportunity to hear the sermons, they are worth your time and they can be found online. Please listen to them. This week we do begin a new series. It's in a formidable book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. One of my theological mentors, who's long dead, John Calvin, wrote a commentary on most every book in the Bible but the book of Revelation. And so we tread into dangerous territory, but also what is a very helpful and pastoral book that we need to reframe. And in our new series, we'll focus on chapters 2 and 3 where there is a vision of Jesus and Jesus addresses seven churches, seven churches that the Apostle John had ministered to. And the reason that we do this is because we need to consider as a church, if we've been called by God to go out into mission, we need to consider who we are to be as a church that can be useful to him. And these seven letters to these seven churches continue to speak today about what it means to be a lampstand, a light in the midst of darkness. And this week, we'll begin with the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's important to note that these seven letters are part of a vision that begins in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, John, while in exile on the Isle of Patmos... He has a vision of the risen Jesus who's Lord of lords and King of kings. He's reigning over all. And the description that he gives of Jesus draws us into two images from the Old Testament. That Jesus is the Son of Man. This is drawing from Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Where there is one who comes to reign over the nations of the earth. The Son of David who is the Son of Man. He is a king. And then the descriptions also pull us into the direction of the high priest. That the garments Jesus wears is like that of the priest. And so, Jesus, the high priest and king, as he begins to dictate his letters, is seen by John walking amongst the lampstands. And in chapter 1, verse 20, we discover that the lampstands are the churches. That the churches have representation in God's heavenly court. And Jesus is intimately dwelling with them. And it was the task of the priest inside of the temple to tend to the lamps. That he was to cut them and trim the wick. That he was to fill them with oil. That he was to relight them if they went out. And so Jesus is tending to his priestly duties. Caring for the churches. Caring for the lampstands. And many people, though, when they come to a series like this in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, they stumble. These visions are difficult. They seem to be fantastical. How do they relate to today? Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite short story writers from the southern tradition, In her book, Everything That Rises Must Converge, has a short story titled Revelation. And it's extremely helpful for helping us understand how visions can fit into our lives and what the purpose of them is. She tells the story of a southern woman named Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin is a very self-righteous and proud woman. She goes to a doctor's office While she is in the waiting room, there is a mentally handicapped woman there also waiting. They are sitting across from one another, and the mentally handicapped woman becomes boisterous, and Mrs. Turpin, in her sly and southern way, is obviously disproving. The mentally handicapped woman ends up attacking her, jumping across the doctor's appointment office chairs and tackling her to the ground. She leaves in a, in a ruffle. She goes home, and she was a swine farmer. She's murmuring to God about how unrighteous it was for this woman to attack her and how society had lost all decency for something to happen like this to her. She comes home, and she takes an insult from an African-American lady. She then promptly turns and goes out to the pigs, where she was going to feed them. And she had a hose. And she takes the hose and lets all of her anger out on these pigs. She's spraying them as hard as she can. It's a comical scene. And she's crying out to God. And she says, you can take the bottom rail and put it on top, but it doesn't change a thing. She says it over and over and over. That day's injustices just ate her alive, and she was fuming with anger. She continues to spray the pigs to cause them pain. And suddenly, Connor O'Connor ends the story with a vision. She writes that suddenly the heavens break open and there is a band of unruly people processing from earth to heaven. And the first among those processing into the heavens were the African Americans and we're the lame, and we're the mentally handicapped. And O'Connor draws the point that it was just as Jesus had said, the last would be first. And this was the point of O'Connor's short story, that this heavenly vision was not an escape from the here and now into the hereafter. But the point of the heavenly vision was to give a new perspective on the here and now. That Mrs. Turpin was to be changed by what she saw. That in her self-righteousness, and in her prejudice, and in her arrogance, that this vision was to change her life in the present. And friends, when it comes to reading the book of Revelation, and dealing with these visions, John escapes up into the heavens. But He doesn't do so in order to tell us about the hereafter. He does so in order to reshape our perspective on the here and now. Because He has a vision from Jesus. And Jesus speaks into the historical context of these churches. He speaks into the life of particular churches that also still applies to all of us today. Because our lives are still not incredibly different. And so the key question for us this morning is what do we learn from the heavenly perspective? When Jesus speaks to the church, when he speaks to us, when he looks on us, what does he see and what do we learn? And in this vision, in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 7, Jesus addresses the church and he will commend us, he will critique us, and He will call us into a way of spiritual vitality in renewal. This is what we learn from the heavenly vision. And so let's look at each of these in turn. Jesus commending us, critiquing us, and calling us into spiritual renewal. And so first, Jesus commends us. And sp- specifically, He commends us when we remain faithful to His Word. Verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The church in Ephesus was in the middle of a massive and important city. It was a center of cosmopolitan trade and Great cultural interaction and confluence. And Paul had gone there preaching the gospel. He spent an inordinate amount of time there and also wrote a letter to them, the book of Ephesians. He journeys there a couple of times. He spends at least three years. And this church was well pastored because not only was it Paul who turned up in Ephesus, but he would later send Timothy Timothy, Paul's earnest and eager disciple, he commissions to go to this church that Paul loved. But it was not only Timothy. There was also Apollos, who we know from the New Testament was perhaps the greatest preacher of all. Of all the apostles, he stood out that Apollos had also been in Ephesus preaching. But not only Apollos, there was also the Apostle John, the beloved disciple He fled from Jerusalem, and church tradition tells us that he arrives in Ephesus, and John also pastored the church in Ephesus. It was a church full of theological giants, apostles and apostolic company, and they ministered in the middle of complicated and complex times, and the church remained orthodox. There were many problems and there were temptations to compromise doctrine. But what Jesus says is He knows that they do not bear with those who are evil. They have tested those who claim to be apostles but proclaimed a false gospel. And Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for its doctrinal faithfulness. If you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders just before he is arrested. Verse 28, he says, "...pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock." And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And this was Paul's final words of warning to the church in Ephesus. And they had held fast. They had not tolerated false doctrine. They had not given in to it. They didn't find it permissible. They were willing to say no. Jesus goes on further in verse 6, and he says that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans seems to be a very complicated heresy that was troubling the early church. We'll encounter it several times in these letters. But what these teachers seem to propose is some level of compromise with the idle economy of Ephesus. That Ephesus had a massive temple complex and many different gods and goddesses. And we learn in the book of Acts in chapter 18 of the economy and how it was tied in with the idol service. That there were silversmiths whose livelihood was tied in with people's purchasing of things. And there were meals and there was a whole agricultural industry that went into supporting the idols and the temple complex. And so not to participate suddenly made you not a good citizen. And We need to recognize that the pressures were more than simply them not worshiping these gods but it involved their complete social way of being and life in the community. And these Ephesian Christians had not given in. They had held fast. They refused to compromise with the culture. They could say no. And Jesus commends them for it. There's a similar controversy in the early 1900s inside of the Presbyterian church. It is known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. But there were a group of ministers who did not want to adhere to certain doctrines in the Bible. They did not believe that modern men could adhere to such things, and so they wanted to loosen the restrictions for ordained clergy. These doctrines were things like the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus' miracles. You see, these pastors wanted to be relevant to the world in which they ministered. They wanted to make the Gospel believable. And so they wanted to cut out these things. We don't need to take the Bible too seriously. And no one can believe things like the virgin birth or that God raised somebody from the dead or that Jesus worked all of these miracles. But there's much about the Scriptures that we can affirm And there's much about God that we want to teach. One of the most famous proponents was a man named Henry Henry Emerson Fosdick. He was a Baptist minister who was the stated supply pastor at the First Presbyterian Church of New York City. And in May of 1922, he preached a famous sermon entitled, Will the Fundamentalist Win? This led to what was called the Auburn Affirmation in 1924 where the denomination agreed that those who would be ordained did not have to agree with these fundamentals. That they were thrown out as necessary for ordination. And friends, it was all because of a cultural trend that led the church to compromise what its revelation had clearly stated. And that is the pressure that the church is always under. We face similar pressures today where culture and society have certain beliefs and the church has a confession of faith. And Jesus commends the church that holds fast to its doctrine. All the tradition it has received. The Word of God revealed to us. And Christ's church has a wonderful history. Ministers like John Hutchinson, John Sidema Guest pastors who have been in this pulpit, Richard Pratt, Steve Brown, Sandy Wilson, you've been taught by some of the best in the American scene. Maintain that course. Uphold doctrinal orthodoxy. All that God reveals to him about Himself in His Word. And you see, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take the Word of God and His revelation very seriously. And Jesus commends that church that seeks to sit at His feet and affirm all that Scripture reveals. And so Jesus commends us as we walk in that path. But yet, Jesus also critiques us. He brings us under evaluation and He exhorts us. You find this in verse 4. Jesus turns and says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's amazing. He turns from commendation to critique. And it's difficult for us to hear. Can you imagine receiving that word of critique from Jesus when you were the faithful ones? That you had not compromised. That the false teachers you had been part of removing. That those who were not orthodox you had put out. You had perhaps done so at great cost to yourself. You feel like you're the only faithful one. That your church is proud and you've taken a strong stand. And then what does Jesus go and do? He still has a word of critique. And friends, it is often those who feel like they've been faithful who are some of the most unteachable. And this is the ground that Jesus attempts to bust up in Ephesus. That there was a a needed commendation. That they had been faithful in a certain way. And yet, they were also coming up short and what jesus addresses he addresses their affections that you have abandoned the love you had at first their commitment to him their passion for him that is involved in their sacrifices that they would make for him that as the generations moved on that the ardor and the fervency and devotion to jesus was not continuing in the church yes they were doctrinally pure And they could affirm the right words. And they knew the right theology. They knew the doctrines that they needed to sign up to.
1: But yet, their love for God, a very subjective category, Jesus says, was lacking. And friends, at the end of the day, it's difficult for us to address
0: inside of our human knowledge. But this One who speaks to the church knows that He dwells amongst the lampstands, that He's intimately acquainted with the church, and He knows you. And He has the right and He has the prerogative to commend you and critique you and to say that your love is lacking. When I was a young pastor at Second Presbyterian Church, we had gone on a campaign to work with our roles. You can imagine at a several hundred year old church that there was a complicated role and there were many people who found themselves to be members of the church who were not really participating in the church's life. And so it was incumbent upon the pastors and the elders of the church to begin working with several hundred people who were not active members of the church. And so there were letters being written, and we were attempting to have personal engagement with this very uh, large group of people, because ultimately we were concerned. We weren't just trying to clean up the roles administratively. We were trying to pastor those people that God had inside of our care. It was pretty difficult work. It was hard to get people to respond. And then we ran into a roadblock. In Presbyterianism, there's always this thing called the book of church order. It's a wonderful gift on most days. And the book of church order gave a definition of what an active member inside of a church was. And this was the definition we were handed. That an active member inside of a church will attend one worship service a year and give at least one penny at that one worship service a year. And if you attended once and you gave at least one penny, you were an active member in good standing. And suddenly our whole enterprise, everything we were seeking to do was handcuffed by the book of church order. But you see, even if we had had a more rigorous system, we couldn't have really known the heart Because you can be here every Sunday of the year and you can give loads of money and yet you can be cold in your affections for God. And you can come only once a year and maybe only give one penny and be cold in your affections for God. This is the great limitation of the human situation. What we're talking about is incredibly subjective. And Jesus addresses us though of the great dangers of losing our first love. Losing what it means when His Spirit invades our lives and converts us. That when we feel the incredible depth of our sin, and we know that we're alienated from God, and our sins are crashing down on us, and we know that there's only one hope, and that is for Jesus to bear our sins. And the love of God breaks open
1: on our lives and frees us. Do you remember that? Over the years and over time, it's easy for that to grow dull.
0: And we no longer make the sacrifices. We no longer are as committed as we once were.
1: And Jesus speaks a word to us to convict us. because He's concerned about the spiritual health of His people. That having experienced His great love, we walk in love with Him. And so He critiques us. And finally, in this letter, Jesus not
0: only critiques us, but He calls us into the way of spiritual renewal After he lands his critique in verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen,
1: repent and do the works you did at first. When our love grows cold,
0: Jesus calls us to this rhythm that we are to remember, that we are to repent, and that we are to return. To our first love. To that original obedience. What that looks like. That He wants us to remember what our lives were, were like when we knew what it was to be freshly converted. And when we yielded ourselves to His Word and there was an eagerness and a passion to follow
1: after Him. And He wants us to turn. To answer His claim upon our lives. And then he wants us to return to those works which we formerly did.
0: The one who tends the lampstand is deeply invested in your spiritual renewal and vitality. You see, you can have all those perfectly orthodox preachers. And you can have a wonderful church that's doctrinaire and committed that has all the right standards and
1: confessions, that upholds the integrity of the Bible, and you can be dead. Cold. Those pastors can't protect you. Apollos, John, Paul, Timothy,
0: they couldn't keep back the affections of the heart from moving from Jesus. That we each have to take up that responsibility that we retain that primary affection. We find two resources, though, in the Christian life that help us. Because we all know the rigor and difficulty of this. That from our conversion until our death is oftentimes a very long journey and what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. It can get so monotonous and difficult. And so what does God give to us in order to bring us along in the journey the first this we have to remember that this is not god's first letter to ephesus if you turn to the book of ephesians in chapter 3 paul prays for the church listen to what he says And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a beautiful prayer. And it is one of the keys to our spiritual renewal and vitality. That this surpassing love that exceeds all knowledge, that we will never fully get our hands around. That it is in coming into contact With the mystery of this love and the greatness of it, its height and width and depth and breadth, trying to comprehend it, this is the key to our renewal. It brings us into contact daily with our sinfulness and yet the overwhelming love of God that conquers our sins. That when we are helpless, He comes to us. That when we are alienated, He takes that away through Christ. This love that surpasses knowledge. This is the first key to our renewal. That we have to daily stay in touch with our sinfulness and our brokenness. And the love of God that perseveres and that He sustains
1: for us. This is the first key. The second back in the book of Revelation,
0: is that we must curate hope in our hearts. That not only are we to look back and remember the grace that God gives to us and to be overwhelmed by this mystery, but also we are to look forward. We are to look forward for, to everything that God has for us His people. In verse 7, Jesus says, to the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The Apostle John, in writing down this vision, is going to stitch these words together with the final chapters of the book of Revelation in chapter 21 and chapter 22. And here, the tree of life which is in the paradise of God is the temple of God. It's the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven and comes to the earth. And heaven and earth are made one. That God stoops and wipes away the tears from His people's eyes. That He raises the dead. That He makes everything new. Creation is healed from the pollution of sin. Everything is made right and restored to everything that God originally intended for it to be. And Jesus here promises to those who hold
1: fast to Him that you will participate in that world. It belongs to you. And
0: it is that future hope that also compels us. That it draws us. It pulls us. Bringing us through life because we know what God has in store. We taste the almostness of this world. And yet, we know its severe limitations. And we have the hope kindled in our hearts of what life will be like in a world free from the stain of sin. And so God gives us these two resources. His immeasurable love that overwhelms our sins and also the future world that will be free from sin. And friends, that is the path of spiritual renewal and vitality, that we stay in touch with these two things. And it is these two things that will then flame our love for God, that not only will we be doctrinally orthodox and have our theology in the right place, it is important, but that our hearts will be orthodox as well that we will love God and know how to respond to His rich mercy and to give ourselves fully to Him to answer His claim upon our lives. In these strange visions, Jesus does speak to us. He's speaking to a historical particular church. But then in verse 7, we learn that all the churches were to listen to this. And the number seven was that of completion and perfection. John was ministering to the global and universal church. And so Jesus is speaking today. He commends us. He critiques us. And He calls us into the way of renewal. And He says that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ church, let's listen. Let's not hinder the Spirit's work. Let's allow Him to minister to us. That we continue to walk in the way of His commendation. That we receive His critique and know it comes from the hands of the One who loves us. Who wants us to be a faithful lampstand. And that we accept the way of spiritual renewal and vitality. Allowing the great hope of the Gospel to propel us forward. Not growing cold.
1: That's the path God has for us. Let's take it up. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would give us
0: ears to hear. That Your Spirit would be at work in our hearts. That we would receive Your commendation that for the faithfulness in in this church to hold fast to the Gospel, to not compromise with those who would throw away good doctrine and teach things that tickle ears. And
1: Lord, we pray that we would also receive Your critique. We know that our hearts are prone to wonder. We feel it. Lord, renew us. Renew us into vitality and a love
0: for You, that we would walk understanding Your great love for us and be overwhelmed by it. And that would drive us into a passionate commitment to You, and that we also be compelled by the great vision of all things made right, where we will eat from the tree of life. And our Lord Jesus will reign over everything and destroy the
1: final enemy death. Be at work among us, we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.